Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We are starting a brand new series in the book of Zechariah. We are looking at chapters one through eight and the title of this episode is Entitled Exceptionalism. The format of today's teaching is rather simple. There are three different parts to this teaching, and the first part is the context of the book of Zechariah. The second is the thesis of the book of Zechariah, and the third part is the application of the book of Zechariah. So let's go back to the historical context around this book. Now, the book of Zechariah was written in 520 BCE in Jerusalem. To understand why Zechariah wrote what he wrote, though, we have to go back to 1000 BCE to the reign of what many consider to be Israel's greatest king, David. Now, during David's reign, there were a lot of battles and even wars with neighboring tribes. But beyond the tribes, there were two empires that kept rising in power. To the north was the empire of Assyria, and to the south was the empire of Egypt. And while those empires were rising, David was creating an empire of his own with the nation of Israel. This was pushed over the top some 40 years later by his son and successor, Solomon. And to give you an idea of how strong Solomon made the nation of Israel, the author of Kings writes in chapter 10 that Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as numerous as the sycamores of the Shephelah. In other words, when Solomon reigned, Israel's economy skyrocketed. And the secret for Solomon's success on the throne and the economic prowess that Israel deserved was quite simply this. Solomon enslaved everyone. He enslaved the people of Israel. He enslaved the nations he conquered. And with a cheap labor force, cheap is the wrong term, with an enslaved labor force, Solomon saw economic growth that was unrivaled in Israel's history. In fact, many people look back at the reign of Solomon as Israel's golden age when they were the richest and the most powerful. Now the slavery did not go over well with the people of Israel, as you can imagine. And so when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam went to the throne of a rich and powerful nation and people asked him what kind of king he was going to be. Now, Rehoboam, with an extreme amount of tone deafness, told the people that he was going to be a more cruel king than his father. This was definitely the wrong thing to say. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel heard Rehoboam promising to be a worse king than his father, and they seceded from the union and formed the northern nation of Israel, while Rehoboam continued to reign over Jerusalem and another tribe which was known as the nation of Judah. And because of this split, there was a civil war, there was uneasy alliances, there was backstabbing, there was gossip. It was a very tense time when these two different nations were separated with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. This was brought to an end in 722 BCE when the northern empire of Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed it. This is a devastating moment within Jewish history. Now the people of the southern kingdom, Judah, rushed to their border to meet the Assyrians, surrender, and say, we would like to form an alliance with the empire of Assyria. 
Now that of course made the Southern Empire of Egypt very uneasy. And to add to the tensions, another empire began to rise to the east known as Babylon. So imagine for a moment this tiny little nation of Judah surrounded by three massive military superpowers and also a body of water to their back. This was a very tense time within Jewish history. Now in the mid 7th century BCE, a man named Jeremiah was born and lived in Jerusalem. Now, Jeremiah saw and witnessed all of the things that I am about to describe here in the next several decades. Now, in the late 7th century BCE, Babylon went to war with Assyria to see which superpower, which empire would survive. And in 609 BCE, Babylon destroyed Assyria and shocked the world by bringing the Assyrian Empire to an end. Now, this made the southern empire of Egypt very nervous. So much so that four years later, they met the empire of Babylon in 605 BCE at the Battle of Carchemish. And wouldn't you know it, the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians. Now, this made the people of Judah very nervous because they knew that they were next. And eight years later, in 597 BCE, Babylon launched an attack on the city of Jerusalem and won. Now, they allowed the city to remain standing, and they asked the people of Judah living in Jerusalem to ultimately live under Babylonian rule. They then forced some people to come back and live in Babylon with them, and one of those people was the prophet Ezekiel, who he studied a few years ago. However, after a decade went by, Jerusalem decided to revolt against Babylonian rule, and the Babylonians did not appreciate that. So in 586 BCE, they launched a full-scale attack and this time left none of the city standing and took every survivor they could find back to Babylon with them to live in exile. So now you have people living in exile, uncertain they will ever return to their homeland, and you can imagine there's this theological question that begins to arise. Why is this happening to us? If God is all-powerful and all-loving and we are God's people, why didn't God protect us from the Babylonians? Now, it's here that the prophet Jeremiah, who has been witness to what the past several decades have brought, tells the people of Israel that they are being punished by God for not being fully devoted to God. And so Jeremiah writes the following words in chapter 25, verse 11 of his prophecy. He writes, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. A few chapters later, in chapter 29 of his prophecy, Jeremiah tells the people that God has spoken to him, and this is what God has said. God says to Jeremiah, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit Judah, and I will fulfill to Judah my promise and bring Judah back to this place. So the predominant theological question that the people of Judah are asking while in Babylonian exile is, why is this happening to us? And Jeremiah and others come back with an answer. We were not religious enough. We were not devoted to God enough. So God is punishing us for 70 years. We're going to spend seven decades in exile. 
And then God will restore us because that is the sentence that God has declared is just. So you can imagine that there were some people who were living in exile that settled in and said to themselves, you know what? 516 is the year that God will restore us, that God will liberate us, and everything will go back to normal then. But that's not how history unfolded. Because in 539 BCE, another empire rose to the east of Babylon, and that was the Persian Empire, led by Cyrus the Great. So Cyrus attacks Babylon with the Persian army behind him and defeats the Babylonian army as well as the capital of Babylon. And he looks around at these people who are standing around. He says, wait, who are you guys? And they say, well, we're from Judah. And he tells them, you are free to go home as long as you pay taxes to Persia. So Cyrus sends the Jews back to Judah 20 years ahead of schedule, right? And they arrive in Judah and they begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And they are rebuilding for 17 or 18 years. They are just four years away from the end of the 70-year prophecy. And they're looking around. They're saying, man, it's been 70 years. When is God going to restore our nation? Because most people just four years away from the end of that 70-year promise thought to themselves, hey, I pictured us being more powerful at this point. I thought we'd have more economic stability. I'm hoping that God will restore us to the days of Solomon, the golden age of our history. So the predominant theological question that's being asked is, when is God going to restore us? Because we've been told that God would restore us in 516 BCE, and we aren't even close to that just four years out. That is the context that Zechariah writes his book in. His book is about addressing the 70 years coming to a close. And he writes it just a few years before that 70 years is set to expire. Which brings us to the thesis of Zechariah's work. Now, Zechariah 1.1 is not the thesis, but it lays the groundwork for the context. We read, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Bechariah, son of Edo, saying, I was very angry with your ancestors. Return to me, and I will return to you. And that is the thesis statement of the book of Zechariah. God says to the people of Judah, return to me and I will return to you. Now, this is a very significant statement, but I do not blame you if you feel that it is an insignificant statement. To understand the significance of this, we turn the page and go to the very next section of Zechariah, which is a wild section of scripture. Because Zechariah receives nine different visions he claims to be from God. And these visions are otherworldly, psychedelic, full of symbolic, and full of mystery all at the same time. And if you have read the book of Revelation before, you will read Zechariah and say, hey, 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 this is the same thing. Because Zechariah will remind you of Revelation, which is a very nice way for me to say that Revelation is a cheap knockoff of the book of Zechariah. 
So in chapter one, we hear about Zechariah's first vision, which is a vision of four horsemen bringing news from God. Now, in the middle of that, there is an angel of the Lord who turns to God and speaks to God specifically about the 70 years coming to a close. In verse 12, the angel says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been angry these 70 years? From there, we come across the second vision, which has four horns flying in the air and four craftsmen creating things. Then in chapter 2, we read about an angel making measurements for the new Jerusalem. This new Jerusalem is not an otherworldly creation, but is instead, literally, the city that Zechariah and his people are trying to rebuild. Then in chapter 3, we read about God giving new clothes to the high priest, because the high priest is wearing dingy clothes. And as God hands these new clothes to the high priest, God says to the high priest, If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Then in the fifth vision, we see two olive trees whose oil is dripping down into a lamp who is illuminating the scene around the lamp. Here, God says to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, these words, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, this new form of government will be something different from what other forms of government have been before. Then in chapter 5, we come across the sixth vision, which is a scroll flying around the city of Jerusalem. The sixth vision is women carrying other women away in baskets while sprouting wings. It's rather strange. <laughs> and then the eighth vision is four more horsemen, but this time they're riding in chariots, which all culminates in the ninth vision, which is the new Jerusalem with a giant tree in the middle. And we read these words at the end of this ninth vision, which is the end of all of these visions. In verse 15 of chapter 6, we read, Those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, being Zechariah, to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. I know it can be confusing, with all of these visions flying around in the first six chapters of Zechariah. But this is the most important line of all of the visions. And the reason for that is that these nine visions represent what restoration looks like in a very abstract sense. And the reason this line is so significant is because that restoration is not guaranteed. All of this will only happen if the people of Judah diligently obey the voice of God. Remember the thesis of this book? Return to me, says God, and I will return to you. Well, that's exactly what these visions are about. If you do not return to God, then guess what? God will not restore you as promised at the end of 70 years. This restoration is not guaranteed, but instead is conditional. 
Now, as you can imagine, this causes quite a panic in Zechariah's day. Specifically, we see some fallout from that panic in chapter 7. In chapter 7, there are men who approach Zechariah and they hear him talking about conditional restoration instead of guaranteed restoration. And they say, hey, 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 Zechariah, for the past 70 years, we've been participating in a fast. And this fast is a religious ritual that is designed to get God back on our side so God will restore us. Why did we go through all of those rituals year in and year out and fast and starve ourselves if God's restoration is conditional? And in response to those men, in verse 5, Zechariah turns their question back on their head. He asks them in chapter 7, When you fasted and lamented in the fifth month and in the seventh for 70 years, was it for God that you fasted? And the way that Zechariah asks this question is implying that the answer is no. You don't participate in these rituals to change God's mind. You participate in these rituals to change your mind. Because the predominant idea during Zechariah's day and age is that we need to get back to the days of Solomon. Back when Solomon was king, we were rich, we were powerful, and everything was great except the whole slavery thing, right? And Zechariah is trying to say we were fasting for 70 years so that we could imagine a brand new reality, not so that God could take us back to the day when people hated their king, who was Solomon. In other words, Zechariah is telling the people that this restoration is conditional, but it's also an entirely new creation. Now, this is the problem with people and the baggage they bring to the Bible when they read it. The baggage they bring is they assume that when God says, return to me and I will return to you, that God is asking people for religious devotion. For that reason, Zechariah clarifies what it means to return to the ways of God. And this return is not based on personal Bible study or a rich prayer life or church attendance. It's none of those things. Instead, they are all issues of social justice. Zechariah in chapter 7, verse 9 and 10 says these words, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. If we want God's restoration, Zechariah says, then we have to change. In the next chapter, Zechariah conveys another vision he's received from God about what restoration looks like. Chapter 8, verse 12, God says to Zechariah, For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall yield its fruit. The ground shall give its produce. And the skies shall give their dew. And I, being God, will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Just as you have been a cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I, being God, will save you and you shall be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace, 
Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. So the predominant theological question in Zechariah's day is this. It's been 70 years. When is God going to restore our nation? Zechariah holds up the mirror to the people of Judah and says, well, what makes you think that God is going to restore our nation? Now, you can imagine that people got really upset at this question. People responded by saying, we are the children of God. God owes restoration to us. We deserve to be rich and powerful. And Zechariah hears people saying that they deserve to be restored by God. And Zechariah says to them, wait, wait, wait. If we want God's restoration, then we have to change. God's restoration is conditional and it is not guaranteed. And this whole thesis at the heart of this book is that God is angry with the history of Judah. If we can return to God, then God will return to us. And while people think he's talking about religious devotion, he reveals that he's talking about issues of social justice, taking care of the poor, taking care of the widows, taking care of the immigrants, rendering just decisions, being concerned with truth. And he says only when we reprioritize those things, which has never happened in our history, can we finally become the nation that God intended for us to be all along. In other words, Zechariah tells the people of Judah, who are close to the end of this 70-year sentence, you are not entitled to be the people of God. Instead, you become the people of God through a daily commitment to God's ways. And Zechariah reveals that there is a big difference between being entitled to being the people of God and daily committing to becoming the people of God. So with that thesis in mind, we move to the application. Now, when I gave this sermon at Paradox this past Saturday, the date of that sermon was July 4, 2020. This was America's 244th birthday. And I will tell you that preaching on 4th of July this year was a challenging task for me. And the reason for that is because on that day, it was the least proud that I've ever been to be an American on a 4th of July in my lifetime. Now, you may be offended by this. Um, you may counter by saying, what are you talking about? America is the most exceptional country on earth. How could you even suggest that you could have a 4th of a July where you are not as proud to be an American? And what's funny about that accusation is I actually agree with you. I believe that America is the most exceptional country on earth at spreading the coronavirus. We are definitely number one at that. <laughs> We're number one at fostering this virus among people and passing it around. And it would be a lot funnier if it wasn't so tragic. I mean, there's been nearly 11 million cases, according to Johns Hopkins website, right? 
just under 11 million cases. Of those 11 million cases, 2.7 million of them belong to the U.S. Brazil is number two with half, half of what we have. And worldwide, 500,000 people have died. A fifth of those people, over a fifth of them, have died in the U.S. We have 130,000 deaths from this virus. And what's interesting about America's attitude about this virus is that I have been frequently told in my lifetime that we have the best healthcare system on the planet. We have the best doctors, the best nurses. We have the best virologists. We have the best public health officials. And yet here's this global pandemic and we are by far and away struggling more than every other country on earth. And we are often told that America is the greatest nation on the planet. But then a virus hits and exposes rather quickly that in the area of public health, we're simply not the best country. And when we talk about American exceptionalism, there's this idea that we were born in the greatest country and we are always entitled to being the greatest country which simply isn't true. If Zechariah could speak to us today, he would tell the people of the United States of America, you are not entitled to exceptionalism simply because you were born here. Instead, you become exceptional through a daily commitment to being exceptional. And in the face of this pandemic, so many Americans have personally believed that we are just the best country, so we shouldn't have to deal with this. But boy, howdy, yes, boy, howdy, have we ever had to deal with this. Let's take the simple solution and preventative measure of wearing masks. Now, the thing about masks is there's this idea out there that you wear a mask for your protection. And that's partially true, but it misses the larger point. Because if you wear a mask, you are protecting yourself, but just slightly. The much better protection is if you have COVID-19 and you wear a mask, you prevent the other people around you from getting it. Now, obviously, it's better if everyone's wearing a mask, whether they have it or not. But at its core, you don't wear a mask to protect yourself from the coronavirus. You wear a mask to protect others from getting the coronavirus. In other words, we wear masks for the health and well-being of other people. And you can wear a mask all you want for, quotes, your own protection, but that's not how masks work. And so we have a very visible marker of whether or not you care about the health and well-being of another person. If you wear a mask regularly outside, then you are a person who is considerate about the health of other people. And if we truly are the most exceptional nation on earth, then wouldn't we as the most exceptional nation be the most willing to wear masks out of an abundance of respect for each other? I mean, if we're serious about being the greatest nation on earth, wouldn't we be the first to say, oh, I can wear a mask? to protect my sister or my brother who lives next to me, I'd be happy to do that. Instead, there is a large number of Americans who refuse to wear a mask because they feel like it is infringing on their rights. No, <laughs> you are infringing on the health of the person next to you. 
Which brings us to church. And let me tell you, I love church. We have gone for four months now without holding a church service together at Paradox. Now, there are some who are convinced that the government is trying to bring church to an end, or this is a conspiracy by one political party or another. I want to be very clear about Paradox Church. None of that is true in our mind. We aren't holding church services in person for one reason and one reason only, and that is the health and well-being of our congregation. We feel it is simply too risky to have us gather in a building and we care deeply about you, so we've held church online and remotely. So you can imagine my annoyance when the President of the United States filled a mega church in Arizona on June 23 for a campaign rally and sat everybody as close together as they possibly could sit. He completely ignored the warnings and health guidelines of his own officials and of the state and local governments in Arizona where this rally was held. Now, Vice President Mike Pence was asked a few days later on June 26 about this event in particular. Before I read to you Vice President Pence's response, you have to remember that he is the chair of the committee, the leader of the task force that is responsible for overseeing the mitigation and containment of the coronavirus in the United States of America. And so a reporter asked him, how is it that the president can violate all of these guidelines to hold a campaign rally when it's proven that this kind of event will help spread the coronavirus. And Vice President Pence said these words on June 26. Well, I want to remind you again that the freedom of speech and the right to peacefully assemble is enshrined in the Constitution of the United States. And even in a health crisis, the American people don't forfeit our constitutional rights. My brothers, my sisters, my siblings, this is the language of an entitled human being. The fact that the people that we pay taxes to to make sure that we take care of this virus in a cohesive manner are holding campaign rallies in a traditional format because, gosh darn it, that's their right, and prolong the effects of this virus is the language of entitlement. And if we are the most exceptional nation on earth, well then isn't it fair to ask this question? Wouldn't the most exceptional nation on earth be willing to forgo church services, campaign rallies, even fireworks on the 4th for the public health of its citizens? Now, I know, I know this has been a difficult season with social distancing, right? I love parties. I love gatherings. And I will tell you, I miss people. I miss people who are listening to this podcast. I miss going to birthday parties. I miss weddings. I miss them all. And I'm not trying to tell you that you've just got to shutter yourself up in your home and waste away inside. I'm not trying to tell you that. I'm asking you if you are willing to reimagine your social life. Reimagine your social life for the public health and well-being of others. And what I mean by that is, is it possible for you to go to parties where there are only three people instead of 30 people? Is it possible for you to move every party outdoors instead of holding any party indoors? Is it possible 
for you to go to someone's house and rather than sharing food together, you all bring your own food. There are ways to see other people with minimal risk and we just have to be willing to get behind it. And I know it's difficult and I know it's stressful and I know it takes energy to reimagine things. But if we're truly serious about becoming the greatest nation on earth, then we have to recommit to caring about the people who are around us, including people who are in nursing homes. Now, I don't know if you've read stories about what it's like to be in a nursing home right now, but it is a frightening experience. There are some nursing homes who do not allow any visitors, and for people who have dementia, this is an incredibly stressful time in their lives. Not only that, but if the virus gets into a nursing home, it is an instant death sentence for many of the residents in a nursing home. And the fact is, the longer we let this virus linger in our society, the longer we are asking our residents in our nursing homes to live isolated lives. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the fears I have about eventually going to a nursing home is that society will forget about me or society won't care about me. And I feel like we sent a very strong message to our elderly population that we do not care about what happens to you in a nursing home because we have our rights. We have our rights and we want to go to movies again. And I have to tell you, I want to go to movies again too. Let's be very clear. I was supposed to have seen Top Gun 2 by now and I still haven't seen it. And I'm pretty upset by this inconvenience, right? And what's interesting about all this is that we often go to movies to see heroes do inspiring things. And we'll pay a lot of money as Americans to watch heroes from the Marvel Cinematic Universe rise above the odds and save the day time and time and time and time again, right? And I think so much of us watches these heroes on the screen because we think to ourselves, man, if I was a superhero, I would be a good superhero. I would use my power for good. I would be willing to risk my life to save another human being. Well, my brothers, my sisters, my friends, we have the opportunity to be heroic in this situation. And you don't have to put your life on the line to be heroic. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Because if we wanna be heroic today, I think that we just simply have to be concerned with the well-being and health of our elderly population. Because if we want to be the most exceptional nation on earth, then wouldn't the most exceptional nation on earth be filled with heroes who are deeply concerned with the health and well-being of the elderly? If you want to be heroic, wouldn't you be worried about what happens to them and wear a mask and practice social distancing and wash your hands? Because the message we are repeatedly sending to people who are in nursing homes is that we don't care what happens to you because we have rights. That is the language of an entitled nation and not an exceptional nation. So I have to ask you, 
Do you feel as an American that you are entitled to being exceptional? Or do you feel as an American that you want to commit to being exceptional? Because the truth is that America can become exceptional if and when we fully commit to respecting one another. America can only become exceptional if and when we personally prioritize the health and well-being of another. And America can only become exceptional if we meet this virus head-on and change the way we behave. May we return to God's ways so that God may return to us. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.